A Goose at Christmas by Carl G. Some Americans have a strange view of London. They think the city is regularly enveloped in a great fog. We call each other governor and can all quote entire episodes of Monty Python. The first two of these misapprehensions can be blamed on Sherlock Holmes films, especially for fostering the notion that London particulars are not at all peculiar, so that we spend half the winter under conditions of very poor visibility. Their view of the Brits overall seems similarly misty, and whereas British humour plays well with certain sections of the US public, it doesn't do to be overly clever. At least that was how it appeared to Shane Satie at the end of a walking tour along London's newly booming bankside entitled And If You Know Your History. The guide had so clearly flagged up imminent jokes he might as well have got out a red rag and started walking slowly before the approach of the punchline. About the only amusing thing Shane had learned that evening was that the US Embassy in London was unique in the world in not standing on American-owned soil. Apparently, the Duke of Westminster, owner of Grosvenor Square, where the embassy is situated, refused to grant a freehold in revenge for the fact that Washington's boys had confiscated some of his ancestors' family property in Virginia a few hundred years back. Tales like this... The odd ghost story, a bit of history, were the staple of walking tours, Shane decided. Let's face it, that was one thing Britain had over America anyway you broke it down. And perhaps if the audience could stand it, a little bit of up-to-date news and satire. Provided, of course, it wasn't too clever. In the Anchor Tavern at the end of the walk, Shane was half-heartedly looking through the Evening Standard, re-reading a piece of his own about a play he'd seen under London Bridge Station. He liked the article. It could have been subbed better, but it was good, sharp, witty, a pointed critique with a certain street savvy that he liked to think was his trademark. He hated the play, which had been an attempt to recreate a crime involving the audience as both witnesses and co-conspirators. A bit like walking tours, really, he mused, whose guides form a strange subsection of the entertainment industry, part actor, part public speaker, part teacher and part pub raconteur. From the other side of the bar, Shane could still hear the tour guide's voice, an annoying scouse monkey, droning on about the river, and how people once crossed it by riverboat. He was telling a yarn, almost certainly apocryphal, about a bear that had escaped from one of the amphitheatre's mid-baiting session and made it to the river. The dozy ferryman, assuming the creature lumbering into his boat was just a drunken fat bloke in a fur coat, the scholar was halfway across the river and midway through a rant about all those bloody Huguenots coming in and changing the East End before he realised his predicament and made a jump for it. It was clear from the laughter wafting across the bar that the guide still had a willing audience. Shane assumed this was because people wanted value for money and, cynically, of the guide, that he was probably trying to cop off with the short, intense American blonde. His account of the evening would be hostile. Shane had already decided that. 
It was just a question of how hostile and how to phrase it. Part of his antagonism was due to having been given this assignment in the first place. When the Standard suggested a series of reviews on London's tourist features, he'd hoped for a more interesting subject, particularly in the run-up to Christmas. A Christmas he would be spending alone and poor, and it really vexed him to watch the guide trouser more than a hundred pounds for his couple of hours' work, then not even having to pay for his own drinks. Shane took out his notebook and started jotting down ideas for the review. He was keen to get a pun on the word sabata, meaning one who tires through walking into the piece. Mm. He knew that if he described the guide as a master sabata, it would be edited out, so he started gently. Walking tours are a quaintly anachronistic way of passing the time, which is perhaps appropriate given that they deal largely in archaic facts. Leading swag-bellied mobs of clueless tourists through certain sections of London, he paused and wrote a note to himself to check out the complaints made by a number of Spitalfields residents about the ripper tours of their area. Picking up his theme again, he ruminated. These rabbles prefer to be spoon-fed their history from a clichéd, oft-repeated script, delivered, if tonight is anything to go by, by a passionless fop whose mind is clearly elsewhere. Rather than reading history books, downloading the appropriate information and exploring the areas themselves, they return voluntarily to the days of the school trip. Like those supervised visits, stragglers are encouraged to keep up and participants discouraged from exploring interesting features autonomously for the good of the assembly as a whole. This evening's event, run by the ridiculously named Foot and Mouth Walking Tour Company, I'm sure farmers find that gag really funny, took in much of the recently rejuvenated area around London Bridge and Bankside, was that a little harsh, he wondered, as he took a swig from his pint? Best put in some facts about the tour itself. Most Londoners would probably already know the bare bones of the tour. A medley of Shakespeare, Chaucer, Pepys, and, for the salacious, prostitution. But I would question why even the most bored adult tourist would want to know where precisely on Stony Street parts of Harry Potter were filmed. This is the question at the heart of walking tours as a form of entertainment. Exactly who are they for and what do people get from them? If all a tourist wants is safe passage through London's streets, they might be better off hiring a security guard. If they're afraid of getting lost, perhaps they should consider bringing their map-reading skills up to speed before embarking on transcontinental travel. As to locals who might be considering a walking tour, all this reviewer can say is that this is not the tour for them. Maybe there are more specialised tours that could appeal to residents, but, as a general point, I'd say just walk on by. Shane liked that ending. He enjoyed puns on songs. He watched the pub begin to empty. 
Only a few stragglers from the party were left, including the chestnut-haired girl with the Osmond's teeth, but great body. Swallowing the last of his third pint of the evening, Shane shifted towards the door, gathering his clothes about him because it was freezing outside. It was also foggy. The Americans had got their wish on that. A proper pea super swirled along the banks of the Thames, virtually obscuring the hulking railway bridge opposite the pub. Across the river, the north bank was reduced to a series of dim illuminations that gave no clue to where the water actually stopped. On the other side of the street, the new restaurants in the railway arches beckoned as Shane stole away from the riverfront. He didn't see the girl slip out of the fog towards him. Hello, dearie. Want some company? She was heavily wrapped in what could have been a shawl, but was just as likely a blanket. Shane decided that it was a shawl. Blanket wearers usually proffered a copy of The Big Issue, not company. The girl was very pale and short, with dark hair hanging down rather lankly, and she gave off a faint smell of lavender. The whole scene felt very strange. This sort of thing was not uncommon around Brick Lane, but it wasn't the sort of thing you expected on Bankside. Not any more, anyway. Three hundred years ago, this had been London's red light area and theatre district. That was where Maiden Lane, where Shane was now standing, had got its name from. As well as working girls, there had been gambling, bear-baiting and theatricals to lure people south over the water. Bankside's resurrection as London's leisure district since the 1990s had been based on art and theatre, so he was surprised at the return of the baggage trade. The girl interrupted his thoughts. Come on, I'm perishing cold. You'll be my last of the night. No one about in this fog. What? Here? Bit public, isn't it? Shane glanced about him and realised that, actually, there was very little chance of anyone seeing anything in the current murk. She smiled. Oh, no. I've got a safe spot. No one will see us. Just up here. She led him some way up Park Street, past the turn-off to Borough Market, and then across the main road under the railway bridge. Been to an entertainment tonight, have you, dear? The girl asked. Shane hadn't been expecting small talk, but managed to laugh and said, Well, that's one way of describing it. A lot of old stories, really. Not one of Mr Shakespeare's, then. I like the romances myself. Can't be doing with all that political stuff. Once over Southwark Street, she pulled him, gently but insistently, through a gap in some hoardings. On the other side, Shane could see nothing but he sensed that he might be in a car park. Clearly not a green space, as he could feel concrete beneath his feet. The girl led him to the left until they came to a rough lean-to that looked as if builders had once taken their tea breaks in it. In here. Don't be shy. No one can see us. Ah, that's nice, ain't it? A hand ran up his jeans. But money first, eh? He handed over a twenty and tried to relax, but his heart was pounding from the rapidity of it all and a sudden fear about the location alongside his arousal.
This could easily turn out to be a mugging. The girl looked slight, but she could have confederates. Her hands began to press into his trousers, and he forgot this for a few moments. Been drinking, have you, dearie? she asked, after nothing much happened for him except a soft spasm that told him the game was over. Feeling bewildered, though lighter, he bundled himself through the fence, muttering whatever came into his head. He even asked if he could see her again. Oh, I'm always around here, dearie. But if you need a reminder, take this. He stuffed a small ribbon on which was written in felt tip the name Alice Street and what looked like a weird mobile number, 16780806-1703, into his pocket and walked along Red Cross Way. A gate led into the yard he'd just left and he noticed that the entrance was covered with ribbons like the one he'd been given. Above it, a sign proclaimed it as the Crossbones Graveyard, where London's outcast dead were buried. He looked closely at one of the ribbons, which had Jane Strumpet and the numbers 0506-1662-0105-1679 written on it. Only 17 when she died, he mused, before realising with horror that his own doxy had made it to her mid-twenties.